Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 18th of December, 2012, and our special guests are Adam Fry from Wikispaces and my brother Andy Hargadon and Audrey Waters. Adam, glad to have you here. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much. Andy, good to have you here. <laughs> it's good as always, Steve. Thanks for letting me join in. <laughs> You and I have lots of conversations that just aren't recorded, which is very different <laughs> from the conversations I have with Audrey. So Audrey, thanks right. for being here. Hello, good to be here. Audrey is the, the prolific blogger at Hack Education and my podcast pal every Friday. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. The Hack Your Education Tour finished up in Phoenix, Arizona. And we're trying to figure out what to do next year. We're actually thinking of rebranding. It was just a brilliant set of conversations, but I think Hacker Education doesn't do justice to the concept. So uh, for those of you who even care, we're thinking of calling it uh, the Learning Revolution Tour. So we'll see how that goes. I'm waiting for, I'll wait for a response from Peggy in the chat. <laughs> the Really fun virtual conferences we had this year have kind of wrapped up for the year. They're all recorded. Uh, the last three were the Learning 2.0 Conference, the Future of Libraries Conference, and the Global Education Conference. All of those recordings are up. We have lots of fun coming up this year. Um, just can't wait to announce some of the events uh, that are going to take place. So look, look for that. Coming up on the Future of Education, David Risher from World Reader is going to talk to us about that uh, really interesting program. We're going to talk about student journalism. Uh, in some fascinating ways. Uh, we're finally going to bring Deming into the conversation on schools with Gary Obermeyer. Gavin Dykes is going to talk about student voice and, and lots more getting organized. That should be a lot of fun. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Cal Newport came back on the show. I have really loved talking with Cal. I really disagreed with the premise of his book. Um, um, his most recent book, and um, so good they can't ignore you about the difference between uh, skills and passion. But we had a great conversation. I think it ended up in a really productive place, and it's a, it's well worth listening to if you have any interest in that, the tension between those two. Um, anyway, lots of shows up there, hopefully something valuable. Rhonda says she disagreed. Disagreed with me or with Cal, I wonder. <laughs> This is your chance to let us know, you in the studio audience, where you're listening from. Click on the star to the left of the map. You have to click on it twice, and you can click on the map. I'm in Park, I'm back in Park City, Utah, where we finally had a good snowstorm, which made the driving hard, but it's going to make the skiing good. Please feel free to shout out in the chat where you're listening from, time and temperature. We are we are headed into the slowest part of December for these kind of events, so I guess it's no huge surprise that we don't have a, much of a worldwide audience. But this is such a great topic; everybody will listen to the podcast. I'm I'm sure of it, Adam. No doubt. <laughs> there is a mighty bell space for tonight's event. Let me give you the link. We've had a couple of people, including Peggy, go in and actually really put some good resources in there. Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's newest project and I do consulting for her, but it's a and it is a great content and curation tool. Here's the Mighty Bell Space link. Feel free to go in there. There there are links to Adam's work, uh, to my brother, to Audrey, and you can um, you can post comments and then get yourself involved in a discussion if there's something there that's of interest. So, uh, Adam, you all, I feel like you and I have had this conversation for a long time, and I have to say, I'm really glad that you wrote this piece. Um, do you want to kind of give us the, the main argument and maybe what precipitated your finally doing this? Sure, and, and we have talked about this, and I've talked about this, James and I have talked about this with many people over the years. Um, as we've become sort of more and more clear about who we are and what we do. Um, and as I think, as I'm sure you know, in the last 12 to 24 months, there has really been an uptick 
in the interest in EdTech among people who perhaps historically, or at least over the last decade, haven't had such an interest. Um, investors, entrepreneurs, and you know, partially as an attempt to influence those people, um, we decided to, to formalize what we've been saying for a while and, and try to put down on, on paper, you know, not only what we thought people should do to make an impact in the world of education, but but why. Um, you know, there, contrary obviously to the title of the piece, there isn't one way to succeed in anything. But the reason we framed it that way was to try to say, look, we believe there are certain things that are important to do in this market, in this space, and if you believe those things along with us, here's how we think you can achieve them. Um, it really is a very different time now than when we started back in 2005, and so, um, uh, you know, we thought it was an important time to start saying some of these things. And you know, Steve, you really were very influential in our formative years, and 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 particularly the arguments we make in this piece sort of came out of some of those early experiences where we tried to be a, you know, a, a, a very uh, naive but willing participant in the community that we were very new to and we learned, you know, we learned how to be a participant, you know, through your earlier debugger events and, um, you know, some of the, some of the events that you organized early on. So, you know, I, I do have to say a big thank you to you for helping us come to this understanding we have now. And, you know, when, when James and I wrote, sat down to write this thing, we realized that a lot of this has just become very obvious to us. It's very much ingrained with what we do, but, um, the response we've gotten from the article has told us that you know this this is something that needs to be said sort of loudly and clearly and and and, and uh, we're glad we did it. I think that's part of what has made your voice uh, so valuable in this space uh, is sort of the humility, the the willingness to kind of acknowledge that the, some of these lessons were serendipitous. Um, you've developed this pretty good sense, and and, and you were so thoughtfully candid with me when we first had those discussions about the Bloggers Cafe and what would be an appropriate role. Um, I want to draw Audrey in sort of right off the bat. And Audrey, can you give us a sense of uh, the contrast here? Um, how unique is Adam's message in this piece? I would say off the bat, one of the pieces that's really striking that's different with the Wikispaces hat is that this is a company that hasn't sort of fallen under the glimmering lure of venture capital, which is which is interesting because I think one of the great things about this, um, how to succeed in, in um, ed tech that Adam's written is about just thinking about how you're going to have revenue from the get-go. And I, you know, I think a lot of the startups that I see in education right now, their their revenue is is VC funding. Um, they haven't really worked out the business model. It's free for now. Maybe someday down the road we'll charge somebody, maybe teachers, maybe schools. Um, but really the, 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 the big difference here is this role of venture capital, which is frankly right now playing a huge role, funding a lot of startups. Um, and I think in a lot of ways then um, gets to dictate um, some of the paths that these startups eventually will go down. So, Adam, I want to give you a chance to kind of, in an abbreviated fashion, tell some of the story of the document, knowing that most people will have read it. But this is a graph that Audrey put in her blog recently that sort of shows uh, what appears to be a very similar pattern of uh, investment uh, in educational technology and, and what would appear to uh, predict a, a moment of decline. Um, does do you think that this is about to happen or or might happen? And is your publishing this kind of a part of recognizing the importance of the message at this particular moment? Yeah, of course. Uh, you, know, you, you always have to be careful what you're talking about. And what we try to talk about is how do you build a good business and how do you make a positive impact on the lives of, of educators and the students? Um, this graph talks about something very different, and that is um, you know, how much money is being put into a sector and then um, the implicit message is what are the returns on that money for the investors? The two things can be related but they're not the same. So, you know, it's a very well understood story and one that, that you know, the sort of founding team of Wikispaces lived through and 
in the, the mid to late 90s, there was this huge rush of, of money into the, the technology and internet space. Um, that also came into the edtech space uh, post-2001 when everything fell apart. Um, you know, you really felt it out here in San Francisco. Uh, the money rushed out again because, you know, the, the investment game in a lot of ways is very much about following the leader. Um, so uh, a lot of companies started. A lot of companies got very well financed and had these big, huge plans, and some of them did well. But a lot of them, just by virtue of how the VC game is played, uh, went away. And so then there is a reluctance for several years to put money back into the general technology space, and again, in particular, the education technology space. Um, and then now there is, for various macroeconomic reasons, a, a real interest in putting money back into this space, and so we're seeing a, um, an increase in, in, in financing again. And there will be a drop-off. There will be another you know, bust following the boom, but depending on who you are and what your interests are, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the VCs aren't interested in small returns. They don't want to invest in five companies and have each of them do okay. They want to invest in 100 companies and have one or two of them do spectacularly well. So the bust is fine for them, and, and they're expecting many of their investments to go away. And if you believe in building companies like Facebook and like Google and like you know, previous companies like Apple and Microsoft, you have to do that because you're not going to get to that scale that quickly without taking huge bets and huge risks. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, we play a slightly different game, which is we build independently and look to do something of value and don't necessarily prioritize the huge financial returns. But when you're looking at a graph like this, you have to understand who the players are and why they're doing what they're doing and the, the natural cycles that happen. So. Yeah, there will definitely be a, there will definitely be a bust here. Our particular message in the piece is that not only don't you have to play this game to be an educational technology entrepreneur, we believe that for certain definitions of success, um, it's actually counterproductive. Adam, how much of your uh, commitment to education? and your understanding of this market have come since 2005, and how much did you start with? Was Wikispaces really intended as an educational platform originally? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. We, a lot of the principles that we operate with we had um, previously, and we had built, having gone through the dot-com bust, in the, the bubble and bust in 99 through about 2004. So, we decided we wanted to do things a little bit differently. We decided we didn't want to try and be the first company to a billion dollars. We wanted to do something you know, that felt human to us, that felt worthwhile. But when we started out in 2005, we had absolutely no intention of going into the education market, and frankly, we didn't know much about it. Um, it was, you know, we, we launched a wiki product as a bit of an experiment. James had sort of built it in his spare time and, and sort of thought it was an interesting technological challenge. Um, but we started getting teachers coming to us and saying, hey, this is just massively valuable to us and useful. Can you please pay attention to us? And frankly, we were a little surprised because we didn't understand why these teachers didn't have technology platforms to do their work on. And we came to understand you know, part of why that is and, and, and the need that they had. And so we started, like any sort of good entrepreneur, we started focusing on the people who were most enthusiastic about us. And over time, by about 2007, we were an education company. An education technology company, so uh, um, it was very much an evolution for us. But you know, if we had, if you know, if this had been our first company, and we had just you know launched, uh, as two guys launching a technology company, and some smart VCs had come to us and said, "Hey, we think what you're doing is really exciting. We'd like to give you a lot of money." It would have been very hard to turn that down because a, we wouldn't have known what the alternatives were, but we also wouldn't have had that very strong drive to do something different that, that came out of our experiences. So. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of a little bit about our history. It is interesting to kind of hear you talk sort of so passionately about the, the virtues and values of playing in the education space, but also knowing that that's kind of been um, something you've grown into, and, and maybe in some intriguing ways for those who heard the Cal Newport interview, you know, supports that premise of the skill coming and then the, the passion coming after that. Um, Adam, I am going to come back and, and kind of drill down more, but I want to bring my brother in uh, just for a second. Andy, uh, from your perspective, what are the elements of this story that you, you have seen in other venues that play out that are worth noticing? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, Adam, I I love this story um, primarily because it does it does uh, reinforce my experiences in uh, uh, studying clean tech and uh, agricultural sustainability. Two areas that probably Audrey could have created a graph around that was very similar to the booms and bust graph in EdTech. Uh, it's a story uh, of venture capital sort of seeing another opportunity and hoping it's like the opportunities they've experienced in the last 20 years in Silicon Valley, uh, and then bringing their money in. Uh, and, and in the process, as you identified, sort of shaping how companies approach that market. So, uh, you know, first off, I think it's a great observation in EdTech and one that uh, has a lot more credibility when it comes from somebody uh, building a business there, certainly more than when it comes from an academic like me. So Andy, are there ways? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to bring the policy issue up, which is, you know, are there ways in which the kind of work that Adam has done, the authentic building of an audience, connecting with uh, his product, really as an entrepreneur, kind of learning what teachers wanted and responding in, in a very pure entrepreneurship way, are there are there ways of thinking on a larger scale of how you encourage that kind of activity? Um, you know, aside from publishing a missive like Adam has done, are there other lessons about how you create a culture around a particular um, economic system that are that help to to have companies like Adams be more prominent than the others? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I. When you ask it, I almost feel like this this requires a return to what we thought entrepreneurship was, well, you know, up through the 80s, really, and even into the early 90s, which was more about uh, finding somebody's problem and solving it for them and, you know, building the business because you wanted to make a change in the world, uh, not because, you you know, you felt that you could scale quickly and, and uh, you know, and get out, flip the company for billions. And I think that's, you know, what's changed has been that a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in the internet space and now social media, have lost that uh, that sense that it's about building a, a product that solves somebody's problem. And Adam, Adam you mentioned it, in a, and I think a really nice insight about how companies view their users, um, you know, I think the, the nice thing about saying you need revenue is that, in fact, your users are your customers. And one of the things that's been lost lately uh, when you sort of take the Silicon Valley uh, social media internet hammer and you apply it to the educational nail is you start to think that, that users are products that you use to either monetize or, or eventually accumulate and sell to somebody else. Yeah, it was actually a very, very much a motivation in in recent days, especially for my my business partner James, um, who's you know very plugged into the world of technology in in the valley, and you know we've we've had a rise of some unbelievably successful technology companies, notably Facebook and Twitter, who in the search for a business model have decided to to land on one side of that fence, which is to say. We're not going to sell our users something. We're going to sell our users to people. And I don't necessarily think that's inherently wrong, but it has certain implications. And um, especially in the education market, we thought that that was just something we wanted to steer away from. Um, but you have to know what side of the fence you're on. You can't straddle it. You can't be undecided. You have to be clear about um, you know where your success is going to come from, um, and you know we've been we've been very happy with that decision. Um, it's a it's a, 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 a an ongoing contentious discussion that will um, continue to happen indefinitely. And I think it's becoming more more and more understood um, in the world of, of technology entrepreneurship what those decisions mean. And you know there are even companies now that are coming up trying to disrupt those players like. Facebook and Twitter by saying, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're going to address a market that um, values our service enough that they will pay us rather than having to, you know, turn to, to advertising or other um, other models that that um, you know, productize the user. It is going to be very interesting to see over the next few years how those 
how those companies do. But you know, in education, you know, we don't want to be we don't have we, want, we don't want to have to worry about whether what we're doing with users' data is crossing some ethical line. We just want to be very upfront about the business model and what we're offering and what we expect back. And if you don't mind, Sarah, I would like to say something about the freemium model and how we've, it's a message that we've been trying to get across to the market about how our freemium model works for a while, which I think is quite instructive to, to EdTech entrepreneurs. I'll go right ahead. So, so the freemium idea is that you give something away for free and you charge for something else. And there have been a lot of companies that have tried this in the education space, some have worked, some haven't. I think the secret sauce to our success and to, to, to general success of, of freemium in this market is that the free has to contribute to the premium. The free has to be in the interest of both the users and the company. And that has to be a transparent relationship. So when we give away free wikis to teachers, we do so with the explicit understanding that we're doing that, doing that for two reasons. One is we like, like helping teachers, but also because by having massive numbers of teachers using our platform, we can then effectively sell to the institutions that those teachers work for by saying, look, your teachers already use our stuff, they love it, you should adopt that institution-wide and pay us some money. That's not hard to understand and it's explicit. So um, uh, it, it works, it's defensible, there are no hidden agendas and it enables the kind of trust amongst your end users that you need um, uh, uh, in the education market. And uh, one thing we've tried to tell teachers over the years is understand what the business models are that your vendors are using and understand if every part of what they're doing um, is in your interest but also in their interest because if it's not in their interest it's going to change at some point. And I think we've seen over the last few years some companies with very good intentions have to change tack because the model they, they have sort of doesn't add up from that perspective. I really appreciated that uh, you're connecting the dots in the article about that because even knowing you and knowing the situation well, I thought you articulated really well the, the, the importance of having something valuable that then leads, the, um, leads to the kind of enterprise product that, um, that the schools want to buy and that all being transparent. You also talk about sustainability being a moral duty. And I think that's really critical. Like you've discussed, companies that go away then leave people without a product or service. Did you, uh, how important has that become for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we put that in the article because we think it's true and we think it's in some ways something that we'd like people to think about more deeply. You know, I don't think it's something that, that we had thought about too much early on, but we've sort of come to understand it. And it's, I don't think it's a big, you know, corporate value type thing that we think about. We just deal with teachers every day and we know how valuable what we do for them is and we don't want to let them down. Um, and it's, you know, rather than having one enduring, you know, sort of big picture value, we have many, many thousands, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of relationships that on an individual level reinforce to us how important it is not to stop doing what we're doing. Um, and that doesn't mean we want to change, it doesn't mean we want to evolve, but um, you know, you build up you build up these kind of kinds of beliefs from real real human interactions and I don't think there's any substitute for it. And frankly, I mean the article we wrote, I think it's nice, but you know, you need to learn this yourself. You need to go through that experience and, and decide whether you want to connect your success to the success of the people you're serving. Um, in some ways that's why it's so great to be in the education space because, you know, if we were helping, you know, corporations or, you know, uh, you know, other type of, types of companies, maybe you don't have that passion, maybe you do, but um, in, in education it's not hard to find. So if I could Audrey. add in. Oh, oh yeah, go ahead, Andy. Well, I think this is part of what uh, Adam's uh, paper does really well, is it, it recognizes that there's a very important difference in the market context. Uh, you know, teachers don't adopt this like they might adopt Twitter or Instagram. You know, they're, they're building lesson plans around it that, you know, will last at least for the year, if not several. They're, you know, they're making pretty major commitments to depend on these kinds of technologies. 
which reminds me a lot of the energy space where the, you know, adopters are thinking much more about the downside risk of something like this not working out than they are about the upside of, of trying something new and having fun. Yeah, and, and specifically in the article, we talked about um, the commitment you make to institutions. And, and one of the things that we've learned over the years is, you know, frankly, many of the educational institutions that have you know, teachers and students rely on really have very, very limited capacity to implement, um, well, anything, let alone um, technology at scale. And so if we're going to take up that precious resource that they have to be able to implement a technology for their, um, their constituents, we want to make sure that's a commitment that they can follow through on. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're so constrained. I mean, obviously, there's a huge variation in the types of institutions out there, but so many of them, especially the larger public institutions, are so constrained in what they're able to do. If you're going to go in and you're going to say, hey, we want you to commit some of that energy, some of that resource to us, um, we just think it's the responsible thing to do to make sure you're going to be around. It's so interesting to me, Adam, how your own background of having gone through the previous bust, you know, put you in a position to really think and deeply and create sort of solid boundaries for what you were going to do. I want to bring Audrey in here. Audrey, one of Adam's um, recommendations is to scale down and simplify. Uh, have, did that resonate with you as you've been looking at all of these different companies that are looking to serve education? Um, I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of um, advice that, that, um, that Adam's given here is, is actually, um, is making more, is sort of recognizing the complexity of, of schools and the relationships in schools and not just, I think a lot of the startups that I see are interested in making, uh, interested in selling directly or offering their services directly to teachers and not actually thinking about the, the sort of the complexities of the classroom, the classroom relationship to the school, the school in relationship to the district, the district and sort of larger state and federal policies. And so I think that I think that I think that on one hand it's simplified, but I think it's also recognized that schools are really complicated. And despite our wanting to sort of add these Easy to use, easy to adopt, consumer web models to um, to the tools that we to the tools that we're using for teaching and learning that that they that we still do exist in in these systems that we have to pay attention to. It's not as simple as saying we'll just make this tool for a teacher and we can skip we can sort of skip the rest. We can skip the policies and practices and the expectations of the school in which he or she works. There was a sort of magical, go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, it makes me think, Audrey, you know, the world is complicated enough, you better make your product simple because you're going to have to deal with the world as it is. <laughs> no, that's true. That's very true. But, but, so but for me, there was a, I mean, I go ahead, Andy. Well, you know, the, the thing that Adam seems to be balancing with this, and, and Audrey makes this point, is, you know, you make the product simple, but you recognize that the, the market itself is pretty complex. And that, you know, that makes the adoption process more complicated. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, some of the more VC-backed companies are almost driven to make assumptions about a rapid adoption, you know, and, and therefore, you know, the kind of product you would design if everybody would flock to it easily uh, in, in order to grow as fast as you need to grow to justify the investment you're getting in order to justify the valuation of the company in order to sell it in five to seven years. Uh, you know, then you have to make assumptions about the kind of product you're designing that doesn't involve selling into the school and the district, you know, but rather simply sort of making your product available. There was a magical connection for me, Adam, between your talking about connecting deeply with the customers in one-to-one -one human conversations and the, the ways in which we have this same conversation about what, what really happens in education, right? That the moments of significant growth for students tend to be one-to-one -one relationship built moments. And it seems like there's a temptation both in the selling of product education and in the delivering of education to shortcut that and go to um, something that's not human, that's sort of 
driven by metrics or profitability or whatever it is. Am I stretching on that parallel, or have you seen the same thing? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting point. I mean, I've always well, I was going to say I almost said I've always felt that's not true. You know, it's something that you learn with experience. That you know, you're not, in my opinion, you're not relieved of the obligation to be human um, just because you're operating in a different context, whether that context be business or education or or anything really. So, and I think. You, you will be more effective. Uh, you, you, you have to be. I mean, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're creatures who respond to, to each other's humanity. And, uh, um, you know, if you can keep that in your communications, um, you know, all the better. And I'll make, I'll draw another parallel. You know, teaching, I've never been a teacher. I'm not sure I'd be particularly good at it. It seems really hard to me. Um, you know, entrepreneurship, it's not easy, and and the, the 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 guidelines that sort of we've laid out, they're no guarantee of success. And we we say all the time, you know, we got lucky in a whole bunch of different ways, and we could have had the same great intentions and plans and 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 skills, and still failed. Um, you know, and failure in entrepreneurship is no is, is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, it, it's it's super hard, and. You know, it's a, it's an emotional roller coaster because you never quite know are you doing well, are you doing well enough. Uh, you know, everyone's telling you, you know, their opinion about what you should be doing and how well you, how well you should be doing. Um, you know, I, I uh, always try to tell entrepreneurs, you know, get that, get out there and give it your best shot and and um, you know, be okay with 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 changing and, and evolving because you know, just just like you know, trying to educate kids, it's it's you know, this is. You know, there are a lot easier ways to live your life than try to go out and um, you know be an entrepreneur and build something from scratch. There are a lot easier ways to live your life and make money than being a than being a teacher. Adam, there was another parallel for me, and it was the parallel between teachers learning these new technologies and students learning to use them, both within the educational environment. Have you learned some things that have been valuable watching teachers learn the technology that have helped you understand how students would adopt? I'm sorry, Steve, I think I missed part of that question. Maybe you could repeat it for me. Well, the, for me, there was a parallel between, there's a parallel in Wikispaces between the teacher adoption and then student adoption and use, both in education. Both are learning at the same time, right? The, the teachers are learning to use the, the software, the platform, the wiki platform, um, as well as then helping their students use the platform in an educational context. Has it been interesting to watch teachers go through that learning process, and has that helped you in any way to understand sort of what what students need in going through the learning process as well? Um, I think so. I mean, I can I can speak a little bit to to how we've the experiences we've had, and hopefully, will answer the question. We, you know, for us, it's all about making the teachers' life easier. Um, the, you know, they're not. Most teachers aren't sitting around thinking, "How can I make you know, good use of technology?" They're sitting around thinking, "I've got 30 kids who I've got to see every day. How do I make their lives better?" And they're they're trying things and they're struggling, and some things work and some things don't. And if you can help them experiment and um, do those things they know they have to do anyway more easily, more effectively, more efficiently than you've got. You know, you've got a friend for life. You know, when you make their life easier, they, you know, the, the the response you get from them is pretty incredible. So, from the teacher's perspective, it's 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 been about learning from those who know how to use technology and make their lives easier, and then communicating that on sort of a marketing level to the broader community of teachers and, and trying to explain how we can make their lives easier. And then from the student side, you know, frankly, the students don't have a problem using this stuff. The students are uh, eager to, to use whatever is put in front of them, but what they're looking for is um, the motivation, the encouragement, the permission, um, uh, you know, the carrot and the stick from the teacher to say, "This is what I need you to do. This is, you know, what I'm looking for you to accomplish." And if they have that from their teacher, then they do amazing things. I don't think you know the average student today is, you know, really too concerned about whether they use a wiki or a blog or. Facebook or Twitter or, or, or whatever it is to, to do their work to communicate what they're looking for is you know 
is this, am I getting, am I getting engaged with my teacher, with the coursework, with, with what I'm supposed to be doing through a platform that actually makes, you know, that makes that, that connection better. Um, so that's sort of some of what we've seen. I probably didn't ask that question very well, but I will follow up a little, which is, you know, a lot of times there's a concern that it's hard for teachers to learn some of these technologies. So you you were faced with a challenge not only of helping them understand what the product was, but knowing that, that many of them were going to have to learn what a wiki was and how it works. Did, so did you learn anything about um, ways in which you help teachers come on board in that way? You know, I, I think I have to be candid and admit that we relied on a, a large enthusiastic body of educational technologists um, to do a lot of that work for us. I mean, a lot of the early people that came to us were the kinds of people who were, you know, really working every day on how do we make this work and how do we help teachers get on board with this kind of stuff. So we spent a lot of our time supporting them, um, you know, helping them communicate the message through professional development or more informal events. Um, you know, stuff like EduBloggerCon, trying to teach each other how to do this stuff. So we, we sort of viewed our role as being supportive of the people who would, who would um, you know, carry that mission out, not, not directly trying to do it ourselves. Um, so, yeah, and, and we, we've been lucky that there is a huge and passionate community of those people out there, and if you can support them, that seems to be, to be the best way to, to, get, to, to help the teachers you know, lift themselves up. Brilliant. So, Audrey, you and I have talked about that Tim O'Reilly clothesline talk, uh, you know, this idea of giving more value than you take back. Uh, Adam talks about it in, um, in the article. Um, and, and Andy, I don't know if you had connected with that as well, but from either of you, is there something really critical about that uh, that's, that's important beyond just Adam's story? Well, I was actually just thinking um, based on what, what Adam was just saying, thinking about the way in which he frames it is a very different way of framing marketing. So a typical startup might want to do enough marketing in order to get a certain amount of adoption. And then once they've got that sign up, they're, you know, in, particularly in terms of the numbers that their investors might want to see, they can sort of wash their hands of that. They've, sort of, they've succeeded in getting a sign up. Um, if it's a subscription, perhaps they need to do some marketing again. But framing it in terms of professional development and then recognizing that, you again, you have to sort of, you have to layer in not marketing, but support, professional development support, to me, is, is very much part of thinking about giving value versus extracting value. This isn't just a matter of signing up a new paid customer. This is really a matter of um, then supporting that person in their work and then also, I mean, it is, it is marketing in some ways, but helping that, those individuals spread the skills and the, the sort of necessary tools to get, um, in this case, you know, wikis adopted more broadly throughout a particular school building. Andy, I'm, I'm willing to let you respond to that, or I'm interested in asking you an additional question about kind of the entrepreneurial skills that are required to do what Adam and uh, James did and sort of the, the role that you feel like you've played in, in, at least at the university level, and should we be doing more of that kind of uh, exposing students to the entrepreneurial environment? Yeah, well, I mean, just to finish on that last one, I think uh, I, I applaud Adam, and, and I think Audrey's right. It, you know, it is sort of good old-fashioned, uh, you know, deliver a better value product. Uh, but it's in a world where people have gotten more concerned with customer acquisition than, than sort of retention, long-term retention, which even, even saying it that way sounds a little bit uh, dehumanizing. But I, I think it's a, it's a long-term relationship perspective. Uh, you know, and, and that comes into the, your next question, which is, you know, I think part of the, the, the win, you know, one of the windmills I've been tilting at a lot has been uh, this sort of distinction we've we've suddenly created between entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs, which I think represents the split between 
sort of teaching people, you know, about innovation and entrepreneurship as solving a real problem and, and building a real business versus, uh, uh, you know, growing something fast and, and making a lot of money. And, and so we've almost had to come back and invent a new name for the old style company uh, and call it social entrepreneurship instead. But, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we teach has, has you know, a, a strong focus on trying to understand better the context in which you're innovating. You know, um, as, a, as a bit of background, you know, we're not in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and most of the research that's coming out of Davis and the researchers that I'm working with are in the life sciences, they're in agriculture, they're in energy, uh, they're in education. And they're, they're dealing in markets that, that sort of need to stay old school in people's approaches to building a new business, you know, much more like I think what Adam is talking about. So, you know, we, we sort of have to fall back onto the basics of really knowing the customer and, and really um, building strong relationships uh, you know, with everybody, with the customer, with the investors, with suppliers, with policymakers to, you know, to, yeah, like, like Adam said, be in it for the long haul. So how do you think about that in the context of what you do in a classroom or, or your, the experience that a student has at a school or university? Is, is, the, is there an increase in the need for the kind of entrepreneurial skills in the pure sense of the word here? And how do you deliver that? You're sort of, yeah, there's almost two dimensions to that question. The first is what we teach and how we teach it. Um, I, I think there is, you know, I, I think in today's uh, sort of business context, almost everybody, I, and I teach in a business school, but I also teach a lot of science and engineering researchers, graduate level researchers, and almost everybody I teach, uh, you know, I, I see there's a strong need in their long-term career development for understanding how innovation happens and how the entrepreneur sort of plays a role in it. And, and how, therefore, their own career depends on sort of strengthening their entrepreneurial skills. Uh, it's it's a little too trite to say that the world is changing, but it continues to change. And a lot of our models, from academic research to education to um, you know to manufacturing, are are forcing people to change careers pretty quickly, and and, and therefore forcing them to be a little bit more entrepreneurial in their own choices they make and, and the ways they conduct themselves. So I'll leave that one. And, and that, the second question I'll, I'll leave for later. So Adam, 13 million registered users, 35 million monthly unique visitors. Have you been approached now by venture capitalists or anybody who's looking to take advantage of that? <laughs> um, you know, we, we work in San Francisco, so you meet people all the time. Um, it's uh, it, it's well understood that there's opportunity out there uh, if you're prepared to, um, um, you know, if you're prepared to play the game. Um, it's not really an issue for us, though, because we're sort of fairly, you know, fairly clear about who we are and, and, and what we want to do. And uh, um, while we do, you know, we, we, we do try to keep a, um, a connection with the, the sort of the community and industry we work in, um, you know, we, we're, we're fairly focused. Okay, we're going to shift the Q&A in a minute. So if you have a question for Adam or for Andy or Audrey, feel free to prepare it, put it in the chat, or raise your hand. That's the hand icon at the top of the participant window. Um, before we do so, I kind of want to, I know, Adam, that you've been thoughtful about saying that you're not a teacher and, 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 um, and may not have an expert opinion here. But I am curious, as somebody who's been involved in the open source and now in Web 2.0, how much do you think that the, the web is going to change our sense of learning and when and where teaching and learning take place? Yeah, I think that at a micro level, it's very complicated, and there will be many different approaches to many different questions. But at a macro level, I don't think there's any question whatsoever that, I mean, 
the history of education has been largely about content delivery, as I understand it. I mean, every school I ever went to, you had someone standing at the front of the classroom telling you things which you would write down and then go away and do the real learning. And technology eliminates the need for that. And it's one of the things that's motivating people and has motivated people for some time now to try and disrupt the, the existing models, to say we don't need, you know, we, we, we have the information in innumerable forms that can get to the students far more effectively than having an expert standing up and talking about it. Um, so what does education look like going forward? And that is something that I think will play out over a long period of time in many different contexts um, and, uh, and will completely change the, the way we think about it. But this has happened already in, in, in many places and we've engaged with some just incredible educators who've you know, completely independently said, I'm not going to run my classroom the way it's traditionally been run and I have a very clear understanding of how technology will help me to do that but it's not about the technology, it's about how do we as teachers make these kids we have in our class successful and um, you know, we've written on our blog over time about some of the some of the ways that's been done of just changing the way we spend the, the however many hours a day we have in the classroom with teachers and um, I don't think it takes a genius to understand that you know, that, that can happen, but at a macro level, the challenge in doing that has very little to do with what if you had one great teacher and 30 engaged kids. It has to do with what if you have several million teachers and, and kids of incredible diversity in institutions of all different shapes and sizes. How do you make that change on a macro level? So, yeah, that's, that's what we see as the, the, the big questions around, around technology and education. Audrey, I listened to these brilliant recordings of Ivan Illich. Number one, they taught me how to say his name correctly. <laughs> but it was really interesting to hear him speak in, so I think it was 1970, and he said, within two years, the institution of education will be gone. You know, we're going to see these dramatic changes. You and I are certainly having conversations that we feel are sort of resurfacing a lot of those themes. But can we can we put what Adam's done in any kind of historical context? Is that many users using wikis? Do you think that will have an impact long term in terms of how we think about learning? I think that there's actually something interesting about the particular technology that that we're talking about here. I think that it's interesting that that what we what this person that we're this company that we're sort of highlighting as a model an, a model ed tech company is working with the wiki technology, which is of course something that's about collaboration, communication, it's about sort of sharing and building and constructing our ideas together. And I think it's I mean I think it's noteworthy, although not surprising, that we aren't talking about someone who's built or who's bootstrapped um, I don't know, um, a, a test taking app or a study skills test prep app. So I mean I think that it's I think that I do think that the wiki in particular is an incredibly powerful piece of technology. And so I, I don't I don't actually think it's surprising that when we when we look to sort of the good players in the in our ecosystem that they're that they're building that they're building a, a tool on top of that. We've got some good questions that have come in. But quickly before we go to them, Andy, what about your perspective from being in sort of traditional higher ed? Are, are, is our sense that these changes are imminent, like Ivan elect 40 years ago saying they're going to happen overnight, or is something actually changing? I, you know, there's, there's a, there are things changing, but I'm not sure, you know, half of which is for the better and half of which is not. You just can't tell which half. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the issues that I see, um, and, and, and I, you know, in the K-12 area is, you know, we're back to policy. A lot of the content is relatively dictated, um, whether that's across classrooms or across districts or, you know, across the country. And, and teachers are forced to teach to the test. And, and, and so there's, a, you know, technology can skirt the margins of, you know, can sort of contribute to the margins of that, but ultimately you've got this fairly, you know, rigid con, uh, content that you've got to get across. That, that you know anchors teachers back in the old lecture model, uh, and and uh, you know, in higher ed obviously we're not as bound by that, but you know we're certainly seeing the effects of Coursera and you know all of these other massively online open courses. 
and and it's forcing us to recognize, you know, well, you know, it was fun when we said that, you know, all we were doing was, you know, providing the intellectual, you know, we open our students' heads and we pour in knowledge, and and that's that. And I think we're we're when all of that stuff is available online, we sort of are, are in the very slow process of waking up to the fact that that may not be the best contribution universities give to students. Uh, and things like, uh, you know, now now we can start to play on the margins and, and recognize the real value that comes from it. Okay, some questions here. Uh, Adam Nye wants to know, is it possible to keep your soul and take on outside money? Is that an impossible dream? That's absolutely possible. It's just hard. Um, plenty of people have done it, and uh, you just have to look. You have to look at yourself and, and figure out if what you want is sufficiently aligned with what they want, um, and if you feel like you have the necessary um, you know, knowledge and character to, to retain um, your principles while while also meeting the needs of your investors. I mean, I think it's just as much an, an ethical obligation that when you take someone's money, you um, work to further their interests as it is to serve the interests of your customers or your employees. So these are people that you bring into your to your business as, as stakeholders and you have an obligation to them. Um, I wouldn't say it's impossible. It's just really hard. And I think the most common mistake is just not understanding what the, what the agreement you're signing up to is. I think if you understand it and you say, okay, I'm I'm going to sign up for this. Um, uh, you can do it. And if you build a business that's well aligned with that, and you push it really hard, and you succeed or fail, um, well, that's great. I mean, you know, give it a shot. It's, it's, uh, you know, if just just know what you're getting into. Rhonda wants to know how would you advise someone who is in a market that resists technology in the classroom? <laughs> Are there any markets that don't resist technology in the classroom? Um, so there are many different players in, in the education space and where we found the, the best early reception was the teachers. I mean, the teachers um, will, you know, move heaven and earth to get the things into their classroom that they need. And if you can reach them direct or directly um, and make their lives better, then you can overcome all sorts of obstacles. And ultimately, the thing that the institutions can't argue against um, is the success that they see in their own classrooms. Um, you know, you'll get past the fear and the, the doubt that they have if you can point them directly to, hey, why don't you take credit for this great stuff that's going on in your classroom, um, and, and then you've got a shot. But, uh, you know, when you run into people who are genuinely roadblocks in what you're trying to do, um, you know, don't beat your head against the wall, just go around them. Rhonda's asked several questions here. And <laughs> thanks, Rhonda. If anybody else has a question, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. I'm going to keep going. Um, she says, in a market where transitioning has experimented highly and lost the interest or built obstacles, how would you try to overcome their resistance? I'm sorry, Steve. I think I, just, you. I lost you just in the middle of that question again. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think you kind of answered it, so I'm going to move on to the next one from Rhonda. She said, is beginning from an outsider perspective harder than being in education? The, the answer is yes and no, of course, but there is a huge advantage, I think, in any entrepreneurial context to being an outsider because you don't know what's impossible and you don't know what's been done before. You don't know, you know, the reasons that you're going to fail. and if you did, you probably wouldn't start. I mean, you know, if we'd known all the things that we know now and we had to start out and say, oh, we're going to get into education, I mean, we would take a pretty serious look at ourselves and think, you know, think long and hard about it. Um, you, as an entrepreneur, you have to have a sort of uh, a, a stubborn mindset and a first principle mindset that's going to say not what are all the reasons that people say they do things the way they do them, but really what at its core is the issue here and what are people trying to get done and how, how should things be done. And there is, um, I think, so to, to take a bit of a sidestep here, part of the reason that there's such an interest in education investment these days is because 
Entrepreneurs are great at looking at market and saying, well, these institutions are doing such ridiculous things and so much money is being spent on the wrong thing and they're, they're producing you know, poorer or results over time in some cases. So why don't we simply disrupt that industry and move the institutions out of the way and just replace them? And that's great because one in a million people is going to succeed and radically change the world. But in the meantime, uh, there's a lot of change to be done within the system. But you have to have some of that spirit inside you. You have to have um, a spirit that says, I'm going to go in and figure this out from first principles and help people do the right thing independent of all the institutional barriers that have got that have been put up in their place. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, obviously we could have shortcut a lot of things had we been really well versed in the education market up front, but I think some of that ignorance played into us. Well, I could add a little bit to that. Oh, okay. I, you know, the one thing I, I, you know, Adam probably would agree to, but I just want to, uh, I think he didn't emphasize as much as I'd like is, you know, there's a certain humility that, that needs to accompany that notion that, uh, you know, that people can come in and change it, you know, that institutions are worth overthrowing. And, and I think that's, you know, part of the challenge is when entrepreneurs, in fact, not, not individuals, so much even as just a mass hysteria comes in. And you've got, you know, everyone from Bill Gates to, you know, to, to uh, you know, CEOs waxing in on, you know, how education can and should be changed without a real good sort of humble understanding of what's happening in teachers' lives. Uh, you know, you, you, you not, I mean, you, you run the risk as an individual of failing, but I think you also can, can in many ways soil the, soil the nest. Uh, we're, you know, we've certainly seen that with energy entrepreneurs uh, and you know and when people get burned they're less likely to, to to you know adopt the next thing that comes along or even consider it Audrey that was going to be that was precisely my point as well is I think that there's a difference between being an outsider recognizing that you have a lot to learn about um, about the space and then deciding that as an engineer you are going to engineer a solution for the space without sort of asking any questions about what students and teachers want or need, um, what their problems actually are. And I think that's part of the spirit of entrepreneurship done right, is when you, you meet an industry and they say, well, you know, all of our SIS systems are, you know, sitting in a back room somewhere and no one really touches them except for one person. The, the response to that is not, well, I can build a better one. It's, well, that's really interesting. Why is that? And what would you like? And why are you, wh where are you being let down by your technology? What could we do? What could, you know, how could your institution work better if you had A, B, and C rather than here's what I want to build? Um, you know, is this valuable to you? So you just, you learn to ask questions and listen and just, you know, and, and, and take in as much as you possibly can and over time evolve your thinking about what you're trying to build and what you're trying to do um, because the answers are in them, they're not in you. The, you can build something but you need to know what, you need to learn what to build from them. I think this has really been a brilliant hour. Adam, I want to give you one final question. Uh, aside from Wikispaces, are there some other EdTech companies that you feel are really poised to make a significant difference and are doing this right? Any, any particular organization you might want to call out as another one to look at for as an example? That's a really tough question, Steve. I mean, there's so many, there are so many smart, you know, educational entrepreneurs with, with their, their, you know, the, the, all the right intentions in the world and who are, who are doing great things. I, Frankly, I just I, I wouldn't want to throw a couple of names off the top of my head and, and then miss people and, and I'd be happy maybe to put some more thought into that and provide you an answer that you could publish. But um, I, I I am genuinely inspired by so many people right now. I just don't want to I, I don't want to do them a disservice by by uh, by being flippant with that answer. But I mean the the real answer I think to your question is that there you know despite whatever skepticism we might have about parts of of, of the ecosystem there is just there are incredible things going on and um, uh, people with uh, with incredible passion who, who are going to make a huge difference that's a thoughtful answer and Audrey you and I can probably explore this in our continuing podcast series in part because we've looked at so many companies that aren't really focused on the education market that are making a difference 
like uh, Evernote and Dropbox that were mentioned earlier in the chat. As a courtesy, we do sh we do end on time. Thanks so much, Adam. Really appreciate your being here. Real pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Audrey. Really appreciate your contributing. I really enjoyed Thank it. You. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody, for being here. You can applaud if you'd like. The Hover over the smiley face and then go to the applause icon. Uh, we've been listening to Adam Fry uh, and Andrew Hargadon and Audrey Waters. Uh, this has really been a terrific show. appreciate uh, your attending and appreciate such thoughtful guests. Coming up after the new year, David Risher from worldreader.org. Hope you can join us for something in the new year. Take care and bye.